It was already night on the surface. They'd climbed out into a clearing a long way from Geopard. It seemed to be a gathering place for the surviving mauls from the city. The prisoners were tied up with leather thongs and thrown down by a bush. Nearby, a pack of snags eyed them hungrily. The mauls were talking in their own language. They're taking us somewhere called Gagatas, if that means anything, said Bane. That's their word for the high gate land, I think, said Pismire, where the Vortgorns live. Them? They're our mortal enemies, said Brocando. We like to have several mortal enemies at one time, just in case we run out. Pismire was lying a little apart from the other two. In the glow of the mool's campfire, he could just make out a guard lounging by the little overgrown entrance to Underlay, with his snarg tethered to a dustbush. An arm was slowly growing out of the dustbush behind the unsuspecting mool. It stopped a few inches above his head and carefully removed his helmet. The mool turned and met a fist coming the other way. The arm caught him before he fell and dragged him into the bush. A moment later, the hand appeared by the snarg and started untethering it. It looked up, and with horror, Pismire saw its eyes narrow. Before it could growl, though, the hand bunched up into a knotted fist and smacked it smartly between the eyes. He saw it fall over slowly. Before it reached the ground, the tether tightened and tugged it into the bush. Pismire didn't know why, but suddenly he felt sure that everything was going to be all right. All that night they journeyed south. The next days merged for the prisoners into one continuous blur of running feet and maul voices. And then there was a place above the carpet, the high gate land of the Vortgorns. First it was a glimmer between the hairs, an hour later it loomed above them, the largest thing Pismire had ever seen, and it shone. It was bronze. All the metal in the carpet came from there, Snibril knew that much. The Vortgorns had to trade it with the Whites for food. Wani Penny, said Pismire under his breath, while the party stopped for a brief rest under the very walls of the land. What? said Brocando. That's the battle cry of the Vortgorns, said Pismire. Wani Penny. It's written on the land, huge metal letters. I've seen pictures. Who wrote them? said Brocando, eyeing the guards. The Vortgorns think it was done by Frey, said Pismire. They used to say there's letters under the land, too. They dug tunnels and found them. Some of them say... He concentrated. Isabeth, one one. The Vortgorns seem to think that's very important. Giant letters can't just grow by themselves, said Brocando. They might. Who knows? The mules milled around aimlessly, waiting for something. I suppose we're waiting to get up there, said Brocando. But how? Pismire, who was squinting upwards, said, Ah, I think this remarkable mechanism is the secret. High above them was a speck on the wall. Slowly it grew bigger. 
became a wide platform sliding down the bronze. They could see heads peering over the side of it. When it landed beside the pack, Pismire saw that it was a simple square made of hair planks with a railing round them. Four bronze chains, one from each corner, rose up into the mists. A man stood at each corner. Each one was as tall as Bane. They wore helmets and body armour of beaten bronze, and carried by their sides long bronze swords. Their hair was the colour of the metal. They had short square beards and grey eyes that stared calmly ahead of them. Too much metal, Pismire thought. It enters the soul. Um, Bracando whispered as they were pushed forward onto the platform. You haven't um, seen or heard anyone, as it were, uh, following us, the, the big fellow? Not a sign since we left Underlay, said Pismire. Oh, dear. Oh, no, that's good news. It means he's out there somewhere. Gluck's a hunter, you see. Good point. The chains around them shook and rattled as they took up the slack, and with a creaking, the platform swung off the ground and up towards the land. Pismire noticed a shadow detach itself from the dust bush by the base of the wall and dash for the rising platform, trying to find a handhold on the underside. He saw it leap, but at that moment the platform swung, and he couldn't see the shadow again. Up rose the entrance to the land through swirling fogs, and then he realised he was looking over the carpet. The deft meanies say this land fell out of the above many years ago, he said. The Vortgorns were just another small tribe that lived nearby. They climbed it too and hardly ever come down. The platform ground on up the wall until suddenly it stopped. Before them was a bronze gate built on top of the wall, just above it, heavy gantries carried the pulleys that raised and lowered the platform. The gateway was spiked, and the portcullis in it was tipped with spikes. Beneath them, far beneath, lay the carpet. Gormalish hissed, Look your last at your precious carpet. You will not see it again. <laughs> ah, melodrama, said Pismire. The mules marched on to the Highgate land. Pismire saw a broad metal plateau. On either side as they marched were cages with thick bars. They contained snags. They hurled themselves at their bars as the prisoners passed. On they went, and there were compounds where snags were being broken in and trained. Further, and there were more cages, bigger than those of the snags. They contained strange creatures. They were huge. They had fat barrel bodies with ridiculous small wings, and long thin necks tipped with heads that wobbled slowly round as they passed. At the other end they had a stubby little tail. One of the creatures poked its head through the bars and looked down at Pismire. Its eyes were large but bright and oddly intelligent. A pone, he said, a pone the biggest things in the carpet. Oh, if we had a few of those at our command. I think perhaps they are under the command of the mules, said Bane. The pone watched him pass. They reached the angular metal hills and went through a dark archway. Inside they were handed over to other swarthier mules. They passed through a maze of tunnels 
until they came to a dimly lit hall lined with doors. One was opened, and they were thrown inside. Gormalish's grinning face appeared at the bars, lit red in the torchlight of the dungeons. Enjoy the hospitality of our dungeons while you may. Soon you'll go to the mines. There you will not sleep, but you'll be safe from Frey. Why do they talk like that? Said Pismire. Melodrama. I'm amazed he doesn't go. Ha 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 ha! They lay in the darkness, listening to a distant knocking of hammers. So these are the mines," said Bracando, "where my people have been taken, mining metal. Everyone's people, by the sound of it," said Pismire. They were roughly woken by the prodding of a spear. Two mules were standing in the doorway, grinning down at them. These three for the mines, eh? Oi! Came a growl from outside. Pismire's ears pricked. Let's see 'em! Came the voice from outside. The prisoners were thrust out into the dim hall. A bronze-clad Vortgorn stood there, terrible in the half-light. You stupid oafs! He snarled at the mules. Look at their bonds, practically falling off. And he strode forward and caught up Pismire's hands. The old man looked for a moment into familiar brown eyes, one of which winked at him. We tightened them special," said one mule indignantly. "Oh yes, look at this one then." The other said, "They're as tight as a." The Vortgorn reached out. And placed one gnarled hand about each hairy neck. The voice faded to a strangled squeak. The Vortgorn brought his hands together with a satisfying crack, and let the stunned creatures drop. Glurk removed his helmet. Well, here we are then, he said. He couldn't resist dancing a little jig in front of their staring faces. We left you in Underlay. How'd you come here? It was you I saw, cried Pismire. Glurk took a knife from his belt and cut their ropes. He handed them the guards' swords. Try to look like prisoners if anyone sees you, he said. There's all sorts up here. Glurk led in his Vortgorn armor. Where are we going? said Pismire. I've found some friends. You know why the Moors attacked Geopard? To subjugate and enslave a proud people, said Bracando. For grit. Grit. That's what Geopard's built on, isn't it? Stone chisels, see? They use dozens of them just to hack out a bit of metal. My lovely city. Grit, said Glurk. Metal, said Bane. They're trying to get as much metal as they can. Why all this effort? I wonder, said Pismire. Where's only a few days away? Said Bane. That's why. Come on in here, said Glurk. Here was a long cave mined out of the bronze. The air was warm and smelt of animal. These are pones, aren't they? Said Bracando. Not easy to mistake for anything else. Why are they here? Said Pismire. They turns the wheels for the lifting platform. Said Glurk. They're used for all the heavy work. Know something? They're intelligent. No, that's just a story. Said Pismire airily. They look bright, I'll grant you, 
but they've got a brain the size of a dried pea. But a very clever dried pea, said Clerk. I lay low in here last night. They've got a language, all made up of thumps and nose honks. Watch. A tiny head was lowered towards him out of the shadows, and two bright eyes blinked. Um, if you can understand me, stamp twice, he said hoarsely. Thud. Thud. Even Glurk himself looked surprised. These are friends. Your help okay? Thud, thud. That means yes, said Glurk. Really, said Pismire. There's his saddle, by the stall. It was more like a small castle. Inside were cushioned seats, and on the decorated harness was the card Acre-Tongue, in tarnished bronze letters. Pismire sidled closer to the pone, while the others were manhandling the saddle, and held up his hand with the fingers spread out. How many fingers am I holding up? he said suspiciously. Thud, thud, thud. Thud. Aha! So much for thud. Hm. Lucky guess. The pone lumbered down onto his knees to let them heave the saddle onto his back. Then he opened his mouth and trumpeted. It sounded like the creaking of a door magnified a thousand times. The other pones raised their heads and answered with a variety of blasts and trills. Glurk motioned the others up onto Acatung's back. The mules will have heard that, said Pismire. Won't matter, said Glurk. The pones have decided to go home. The mules don't interest them any more. They don't like them. I think they think we're interesting. Now, listen, Glurk, said Pismire. I mean, I'm not saying you're not, you know, quite bright, but I don't think you could have learned a language and all these other things in just a few... Didn't said Glurk, smirking. Knew what to expect before I come here. How? Tell you later. Be polite, by the way. She said they understand people very well. And who's she? Pismire demanded. Tell you soon, said Glurk. He was enjoying himself in a quiet way. For the whole of his life, Pismire had known more than he did. It was nice, just for once, to be Mr. Answers. At the far end of the cave was a thick bronze door. The first two pones walked straight into it, tearing it off its hinges. Once outside, the herd broke into a trot, with Akatung moving up into the lead. Up on Akatung's back, the four of them were shaken like small peas in a big pot. Pismire saw a pack of mounted mules galloping after them, spears ready to throw. Three pones detached themselves from the herd and turned. The mules suddenly realised they weren't chasing a herd of fleeing animals. Pismire stood up in the saddle. They've gone over them, he said. They hate mules, said Glurk. They think they're very uninteresting. Ahead of them was the archway, surrounded by a milling throng of mules and vortgorns. But all they've got to do is lower that platform and we're done for, shouted Pismire. They won't, yelled Glurk, and pointed. He powers the platform. Beside the gateway, they noticed for the first time a large treadmill. There was a pone in it. A pack of mules were attacking it with whips and goads, but it stood stolidly, trumpeting. Akatung bellowed back. 
They'll rescue it, said Glurk. Some pones hurled themselves towards the mill, tossing mules aside like dust. The caged pone shrugged itself free and then leapt through the gateway. They must be mad, said Pismire. That platform won't hold them. We shall see, said Glurk as they clattered onto it. The other pones piled on behind them. Something went clang above them, and the remains of the treadmill spun until it was nothing but a blur. The chains shrieked over their pulleys. The wall rushed past. Pismire had crouched down in the saddle. They were going to be crushed when they hit the bottom, he knew. Only Glurk saw the pones leaping from the platform one by one. The tiny wings opened. They were too small to carry pones, but they worked. With only Acatung's weight upon it, the platform slowed down and hit the dust with a thud. Acatung lumbered off, while all about them, pones crashed down through the hairs like falling fruit. The others looked up at Glurk's face. You knew we wouldn't crash, said Pismire accusingly. Hoped, said Glurk. I wasn't too sure, even after all Kulena said. Who's Kulena? Is he the... She, said Pismire, he was badly rattled. Kulena's hard to describe, said Glurk. I think she's a sort of white. A sort of white, said Pismire. You'll have to ask her yourself, said Glurk. We're going to see her now. No, we're not, said Bane. We must go to where? I have to tell them about this. They might know already, said Pismire glumly. They don't, said Glurk. How do you know? We're the only ones who know about the Mool Army, said Glurk. We'll have to go to where to warn people. But first, we've got to go back to talk to Kulena. Why? said Pismire. To tell her what we've seen, said Glurk, smiling in a puzzled kind of way. He scratched his head. So she can remember what we tell her now and tell me two days ago when I met her. Bracando opened his mouth, but Pismire waved him into silence. Whites remember the future as well as the past, he said. But, look, they never tell anyone, Glurk. This one does, said Glurk. Don't look at me like that. You think I could make this sort of thing up? You'll see where she lives, he continued. I, um, I don't think people see it unless she wants them to. She's very strange. There she was, and, and, and she told me where you were going, and how I could hang on to the bottom of that lifting cart, and pinch the armour off a of Vorkgorn, and release the pones, and how they could fly. Everything. How did she know all this? Bracando demanded. Because we're going to tell her, said Glurk. Don't ask me how it works. They remember forwards as well as backwards, said Bane. But we must get back to the tribe, said Pismire. And my people, said Bracando. They need us. I've been thinking about that, said Glurk. There's two hundred Munrungs and three thousand Defmenes, and they're all armed and together, and they need us. And Snibril's with them, isn't he? Um, said Bracando. Yes, we hope so. Right then, I think we need them. Anyway, we must see Kulena. Glurk's right, said Pismire. If she's told him something she remembers from the future and we don't go, then, I don't know, anything could happen. The whole fabric of the carpet could roll up or something. <laughs>
For the rest of that day, the pones moved on. On Akatung's back, the four dozed, or looked out silently at the lengthening shadows. And then the pones stepped through, hairs clustered in closely on the borders of a wide clearing, reflecting the dim glow from the thing in its centre. It was one uncut crystal of sugar, high as the great palace of Geopard, whiter than a bone. In parts it shone like polished varnish, reflecting the faces of the creatures that clustered round it. There were dust rabbits and weft borers of all colours, pigs by the herd, grown pipers, scurrying goats with spiral horns, and creatures even Pismire couldn't recognise. The clearing was filled with the sound of a thousand tongues licking. Akatung and his herd pounded forward. It's beautiful, whispered Bricando at last. They climbed down from the pone's back and walked gingerly up to the smooth surface. Glurk cracked a piece off with his knife and stood crunching it thoughtfully. Have a taste, he said, tossing a piece to Bane. Bane bit it cautiously. Sugar, said Bane. I've only tasted it once before. There was a crystal down near the heartlands. Like honey, but different, said Bricando. How did it get here? Like grit and salt and ash do, from above, said Pismire. We uh, don't know any more than that. Instinctively, they looked up at the spreading hairs. Well, here's our lunch anyway, Bricando's voice broke the silence. Take your pick, fried trump or baked groma. Mind you, he added, it hardly seems sporting to kill them while they're not looking. So put away your knife, said a new voice. Pismire choked on his sugar. A figure stood a little way away. It was tall, with the thin face of a white, and looked ghostly in the light of the crystal. It had a mass of white hair. It was hard to see where the hair ended and the shapeless long robe began, and she was young but as she moved, sometimes she was old. One of her hands held the collar of a white snarg, which was swishing its tail menacingly. Um, said Glurk, this is Kulena. The white walked past them and patted Akatung's flank. The pone's long neck turned, and his little eyes looked at Kulena. Then he clumsily lowered himself to his knees and laid his head on the ground. Kulena turned and smiled. The whole clearing seemed to smile with her. The change was sudden and dramatic. So, here you are, she said. And now you must tell me of your adventures. Follow me. There will be food. At the far side of the clearing was Kulena's home, or one of her homes. It was no more than a roof of woven dust on poles. Above it was a large hive of hymetors. Animals cropped and dozed peacefully around Kulena's camp. When Glurk and the others approached, the hymetors hummed furiously and rose from their hive in an angry swarm. The four ducked and tried to protect their faces with their arms until Kulena whistled once. The creatures swooped harmlessly overhead and returned peacefully to their home in the hares. Glurk caught a glimpse of long, sharp stings. She sent them back, whispered Bricando urgently. She just whistled, and they obeyed her. They sat down. Pismire shifted uneasily, and Kulena smiled at him. Say what you think, she said. I remember that you did, but you must say it. Whites mustn't tell people the future, 
said Pismire. Everyone knows that. They never tell. It's too dangerous for people to know what will happen. Yes, I know the rules, said the White. They are only rules. I am not Pismire quite like other Whites. Have you ever heard the word Thunog? I know you have. Oh, yes, the Whites who can remember things that... Oh, my word, said Pismire, shocked. I thought that was just a story. It is just a story. But that doesn't mean it isn't true. The rules don't apply to me. They're only rules. I don't care much for cities. But this crushing and destruction of the carpet, this forging of bronze and trampling of dust... She shook her head. No, this shall not be. You will go to where tomorrow, before the moors leave Geopard. There will be a battle. You must win. I will not tell you how. In the meantime, you may spend this night here. No, said Bane. I need to know. Why are you helping us? What's different about you? Kulena put her head on one side. She stood up and walked a little way away from them. Then she turned. Sometimes... Very rarely. Sometimes a white is born who is different, as different from whites as they are from you. You see, we remember everything. So do all whites, said Bane. No, said Kulena. They remember only all those things that happen. We remember things that might happen. For everything that happens, a million things don't happen. I live all of them. I remember you winning and I remember you losing. My brother and sister Whites remember the thread of history. But I remember all the threads that never get woven. For me, all possibilities are real. But why? said Bane. Someone must. Otherwise they never could have happened. She stepped into the shadows. Her voice seemed to come from somewhere distant. Nothing has to happen. History isn't something you live. It's something you make. One decision, one person, at the right time. Nothing is too small to make a difference. Anything can be changed. The voice faded. She was gone. Several times that night Bane awoke and thought he heard crashes and cries in the wind, but when he listened hard, they seemed to disappear. Glurk sat up suddenly. It was morning. Bracando was still asleep. The others were talking quietly. One look was enough. What we dreamt weren't exactly dreams, said Pismire. She lives all her lives at once. We picked up echoes. I saw Kulena walking through the carpet began Glurk, and I think I saw Snibril too. And I saw the hearthlands and the fire in the sky, added Pismire. Bricando turned over and opened his eyes. He listened to the others for a moment, then nodded. I was back in the Highgate land. It was a domed cave, and under the dome a throne of bronze with a Vortgorn on it. He had a yellow beard and a crown. That would be Stagbat, their king, said Glurk. I heard the Vortgorn guards talking. He looked across at Bane, who had been silent. And what did you dream? he asked. I dreamt... I dreamt 
Vane began, and then seemed to wake up. I dreamt of nothing. I, I slept well. There was no sign of Kulena. The pones had stayed. We'd better go to where, said Bain. I don't think we've got any choice. We've got lots of choice, said Pismire. It's just that we've got to choose to go to where. Clerk saddled up Acretongue. Interesting times ahead, he said gloomily. Snibril had led the search after the storm. They'd sifted through the rubble of the place. They'd gone down into Underlay, roped together, and shouted out the names of those who were lost. They'd found nothing. But, as Pismire would have pointed out, finding nothing was better than finding something. The Munrungs had helped Bracando's people rebuild walls and things, even though the rock itself was now visibly leaning over, and, as someone said, if Frey came again, at least they now knew how to get into Underlay. I'm uh, going to wear, Snibril told the tribe that evening. They looked at him in horror. You can't leave us, said Dodor Plint, who was the tribe's shoemaker. You're the leader. Where's important, said Snibril. We'd just be simple hunters if it wasn't for the Empire. The Munrungs looked at one another. We are simple hunters, said Plint. Yes, but at least we know we are, said Snibril. Anyway, we've got more complicated... That's true, said Cruelly Wolf, who was nearly as old as Pismire. People don't hit one another over the head with clubs as much as they did when I was a boy. There's more arguing. A deaf meanie put up his hand. That's true, he said. The king always used to throw people off the rock in the old days. He still does, said another deaf meanie. Yes, but he doesn't laugh about it so much. Well, anyway... I'm going south, said Snibril. Perhaps I can find the others. Yes, but you're our leader, Plint began again. Then I'm going to lead, snapped Snibril. Who else is coming? Some of the younger Munrungs raised their hands. A deaf meanie stood up. Will there be fighting against impossible odds? He said. Probably, said Snibril. Right, count us in. A lot of deaf meanies nodded. Another one said, And will we get a chance to fight to the death? You might get a chance to fight to the enemy's death, said Snibril. Is that as good? Better. Right then, we're with you. In the end, 350 deaf meanies and 50 munrungs volunteered to go. 400, thought Snibril. Who knows how many we're going to face? We must go to where? where we all began, in a way. It's where people first realised that there may be a better way of doing things than hitting one another on the head. It was two days later. In a grove of red hares, seven whites were fighting mules. It was unheard of for whites to be attacked. This mule pack was large, and led by a chieftain more cunning and wily than most. What he wanted was more weapons. Whites looked easy prey. He was beginning to regret this decision. The Whites didn't carry weapons, but they did carry tools. And a hammer is a weapon if you hit a head instead of a nail. They were standing around their big varnish boiler and fighting back, hammering back. But they were outnumbered, and they were all going to die. They knew it. There was someone watching who knew it too. Kulena the Thunorg watched from deep in the hairs. It would be impossible to describe how a Thunorg sees things. 
It would be like trying to explain the stars to a fish. How can it be said that she watched the fight a million times, all at the same instant, and every time the whites lost? It's the wrong description, but it will have to do. But among all the outcomes, there was just one, as alone as a pearl on a seashore of black sand, that was different. She turned without moving and concentrated on it. The hairs erupted people. The mules turned to fight, but suddenly they were between two enemies. The deaf meanies and the munrungs had found an unbeatable fighting method. The tall munrungs stood behind the small deaf meanies and fought over the top of them. No enemy had much of a chance on two levels at once. It was a short fight and a terribly effective one. After a few minutes, the remaining mules ran for it. And then it was all over, in this pearl on a seashore time, when someone whose whole life was a choice had been close enough to choose. Athan, the kiln master, leader of this white band, looked up with horror as a white horse trotted through the lines of his rescuers. There was a small figure riding it. How can this be? We were supposed to die, he said. All of us. Did you want to? said Snibril, dismounting. Want? Want? That doesn't come into it, said Athan. You changed things, he said, and now terrible things will happen. They don't have to, said Snibril calmly. Nothing has to happen. You can let things happen, but that's not the same. We're going to wear. Why not come? Athan looked shocked and angry. Us? Whites? Fighting? You were fighting just now. Yes, but we knew we would lose, said Athan. How about fighting and hoping you'll win, said Snibril. He turned as a Munrung approached, carrying a white. Our Jerry Dan is dead, and one of the deaf meanie, said the Munrung, and one of the whites. But this one's still alive, just. That is Dana, said Athan. My daughter. She should be dead. In a way, she must be dead. We have some medicines, said Snibril quietly. Or we could bury her now, if that's what you want. He looked expectantly at the kiln master, who had gone white. No, he said, almost in a whisper. Good, because we wouldn't have done it anyway. But I don't know what will happen next, said the white. I can't remember. You joined us and went to where, said Snibril. I can't remember what's going to happen. You joined us, Snibril repeated. Relief flooded across Athan's face. Did I? he said. Why not? said Snibril. But this... this is Thunog thinking, said Athan. The future can be all different things. Pick your own, said Snibril. But destiny... That's something you make up as you go along, said Snibril. I've been finding that out. He looked up at a faint sound. For a moment, he thought he saw a pale figure in the shadows smiling at him. Then it vanished. A million times the whites lost and were killed. But that was somewhere else, in a world that might have been. And now they were alive. And that's known as history, which is only written by the living. They went by narrow tracks that wound in and out of overgrown thickets. At last, they reached a Dumai road. All the signs pointed to where. They rode along it a little way. 
That's when they found the legion, or what was left of it. Do my eye soldiers were sitting or lying amongst the hares by the side of the road. Some of them were asleep, others were wounded. They hardly bothered to look up as Snibril rode by, but the ones who did caught sight of the deaf meanies and started nudging their colleagues. One or two even reached for their swords. There was muttering from the deaf meanies too. Snibril turned in his saddle. Don't make any trouble, he snapped. Why not? said a sullen deaf meanie voice. They'd do my eye. You'd prefer them to be mauls, would you? He walked Roland over to a group of soldiers sitting on a fallen hare. Where's your leader? he said. The Dumai looked him up and down. Haven't got one, he said. General got killed. There was a pause. I expect you're wondering who we are, said Snibril. Too tired to wonder, said the soldier, leaning back against the hare. Stand up straight! For a moment Snibril wondered who had said that, then he realised that it had been him. To his amazement, the soldier pulled himself upright. Now... Take me to the highest-ranking officer, said Snibril. I mustn't say please, he thought. He's used to orders. Um, uh, that'd be Sergeant Carius, if he's still alive. Take me to him now! The soldier snapped back to attention. Yes, sir, this way, he said. Snibril was led past groups of sullen soldiers to a heavy-set man who was sitting on the ground. One arm was in a sling, and his face was pale. Sergeant Carius... 15th Legion, he said, or what's left of it. We were called back to where urgently from Altamaris, but when we were on the road, there was a storm, said Snibril automatically, and then afterwards you were attacked by mauls mounted on snarks, said Snibril. Yeah, time and again. How did you know that? I'm good at guessing, said Snibril. How many of you are there? About uh, 300 able-bodied and a lot of wounded. I know a safe city where your wounded can be taken. It's only two days' easy march if we spare some soldiers to escort them. There'll be mauls everywhere, said the sergeant. Not where we've been, said Snibril quietly. Not any more. And the rest of us will go with you to where? The sergeant looked down at the dust, thinking. Where's this paradise, then? he said. Geopard said Snibril. At that moment there was a roar from the road. Both of them hurried back to where there was now a huge pushing crowd of Dumai and Defminis, with the Munrungs trying to keep them apart. Snibril pushed his way through and found a Defmini and a soldier rolling over and over on the road, punching at one another. Snibril watched them for a moment and then flung his spear on the ground. Stop that! he shouted. You're soldiers! You're not supposed to fight! Even the combatants stopped to work that one out. He called me dirty, said the deaf meanie who had been fighting. Well, you are, said Snibril. So's he, we all are. Now get up. He stopped. All the Dumai were looking past him to Athan and the Whites, and Snibril heard the whispering start. They've got Whites with them, fighting. They know the future, and they're on his side. Why should we fight for them if they treat us like that? said a deaf meanie. Snibril spun around and picked up the astonished warrior by his collar. You're not fighting for them, you're fighting for yourselves. The deaf meanie was shaken, but not afraid. We've always fought for ourselves, he said, and we were never counted. 
No, but the Empire was all around you, wasn't it, keeping you safe? The Dumai kept the peace over half the carpet, all around you, kept you safe. They never did! Think about it. There's Dumai towns all around you. When they defended themselves, they were defending you. They fought for real so that you could fight them for fun. Snibril was shaking with anger. There was silence. He put the deaf meanie down. I'm going to wear, he said. Anyone else wants to come? It's up to them. No one left, except for a small group who were going to accompany the wounded back to Geopard. Two of the whites went with them. The Dumai felt a lot better with whites around. The rest of them marched on down the road. Snibril found that he was in command. The Munrungs wanted to follow him. The Deathmenes were beginning to think that anyone who could lose their temper that badly was probably a king. And the Dumai, well, the Dumai soldiers followed Sergeant Carius, and Sergeant Carius was riding alongside Snibril. Most armies are in fact run by their sergeants. The officers are there just to give things a bit of tone and prevent warfare becoming a mere lower-class brawl. The sergeant half-turned in his saddle and looked back at the deft meanies. Nice to have cavalry on our side again, he said, even if they're still shorter than infantry. I fought against them a couple of times, tough little bast people. That was under Banius. He respected them. He left them alone. I think he quite liked them. Banius, said Snibril cautiously. Yes, um, whatever happened to him? You know him? I've, uh, heard of him, said Snibril carefully. He killed someone. An assassin. Someone was trying to kill the young emperor during his coronation, hiding behind a pillar with a bow. Banius spotted him and threw his sword at him. Got him just in time. Killed him grit dead. Arrow missed Targon by inches. Funny thing is, Banius hated Targon. He was always in trouble. He said emperors shouldn't be hereditary elected just like they used to be a stickler for honesty was the general but after that he had to be banished of course why of course said Snibril no one is allowed to draw a sword within fifty paces of the emperor said the sergeant but he saved his life yeah but you've got to have rules otherwise where would we be said sergeant Carius but afterwards the emperor had the law changed and they sent someone after the general did he ever find him? I think so. He was sent back tied to his horse with an apple in his mouth. I think the general was a bit upset. We could do with him now, and that's a fact, finished the sergeant. A scattering of campfires speckled the darkness. It was the second night of the journey of all four races. Snibril and the sergeant had made sure that there was at least one Munrung at each campfire as referees. What's the plan? asked Snibril. Plan? said Carius. I don't know. I'll just fight. All I know is what the messenger said. All the legions are going back to where? All fifteen? said Snibril. He rubbed his head. It was feeling sort of squashed. The sergeant looked surprised. Fifteen? We haven't got fifteen. Oh, yes, we're called the fifteenth, but a lot got disbanded. So, how many are there? said Snibril. Three. Three legions? How many people is that? About uh, 3,000 men. But that's not enough to... Snibril stopped and then raised his hand slowly to his head. Tell everyone 
to lie down, he muttered. Put out their fires and lie down. Why? said the sergeant. And they must be ready to fight, said Snibril. His head felt as though someone was treading on it. He could hardly think. Carius was looking at him as if he was ill. Please, can't explain. Do it now! Carius ran off. He could hear him shouting orders to the corporals. The Deathmenes and Munrungs didn't need telling twice. A moment later, Frey struck. It was away to the south, not far. The hair bowed and then whipped furiously as a wind blew clouds of dust through the carpet. And then there was the thump. Carius crawled around and then, still not standing up, shuffled over to Snibril. You felt it coming, he said, even before the animals. The mauls can too, said Snibril, and they're better at it than me. They can sense when it's going to happen. And then they attack afterwards when everyone's shaken. He and Carius looked around at the hares. To arms, everyone, the sergeant yelled. A deaf meanie raised his hand. What did that mean, he said. We've all got two arms. Means you've got to fight. Oh, right. It was only seconds later that the mauls attacked, but seconds were enough. A hundred of them galloped into what should have been a camp of bewildered, wounded and unprepared victims. They found instead bewildered, wounded and extremely well-prepared and, moreover, enraged fighters. They were surprised, but their surprise didn't last long. It was, very accurately, the surprise of their life. The mool attack changed things. Deftmenes and Dumai had always fought, but never on the same side. The little army swung down the road to where, singing. Have you noticed the whites ran away in the night? said the sergeant. Not run away, said Snibril. I don't think they've run away. That doesn't sound like them. I think they've decided to do something else. He stopped. They had been passing through the area that had been right under Frey. Hairs were bent and twisted, and over the road was an arch. Had been an arch. There were some dead soldiers nearby, and one dead mole. What is this place? said Snibril. One of the gates to the Warelands. The city's further on. I've always wondered what it looked like, said Snibril. Me too, said the sergeant. We should be there in a few hours. Where? said Snibril.